I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Reverend Campbell. It's great to have you. It is June 14th. As of today, we have 7,982,215 worldwide cases of COVID-19 with 435,166 deaths, and I got a great show for you this week. That's right. At the top of the show, we're going to be doing a little bit of, uh, what does it mean to be a Satanist? What is that? In the Infernal Informant, one article, but it's a long one and it's a good one. What do terms like systemic racism, microaggression, and white fragility mean? We're going to get into that. And in the creature feature, 846, Dave Chappelle's newly released stand-up. We're going to talk about it because I love all sorts of stuff about it. So, before we get into the show, let me give a quick thank you to William for pointing out that I was missing the L. And for those of you who may be noticing that I come early, well, yeah, I do come early. It's a problem. We're dealing with it. I just If I'm just sitting here, what am I going to do? Just continue sitting here surfing porn sites? Or do I just start the show? Let's just start the show, right? <laughs> so here I am. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining. First of all, thank you, Satan. Chris, welcome to the Ninth Circle. Good to see you, man. Dallas, how you doing? Zachary, what up? William? Thanks you again. Thanks to you again. Thanks you. Uh, Clinton, how's you doing, man? Asmodeus, you've come out of the depths of hell, I see. It's good to see you. Kate, how are you? Um, <laughs> Kyle Vasuri, how you doing? Sean, what's up? Uh, Gary, good to see you. Yeah, this is like a reunion of the book club we had earlier. It, we had... I don't need to talk about this every week. I'm just saying, like, this time... It was very much a grid like uh, the Brady Bunch. <laughs> Whoever was talking, people were looking all around because it was just this massive grid of people at the book club. It was great. Faye Lair, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. Okay, so that opening song, that's The Army Goes Rolling Long, also known as The Army Song. And uh, of course, that was, of course, as if you know, um, that was performed by the Irish American Club East Side Pipes and Drums Corps at the annual Ohio Celtic Festival in Painesville, Ohio. I want to give a quick shout out to them because they did a melody, uh, I'm sorry, they did a medley of all of the uh, military branches songs. And so I just took the snippet for the army because today is the U.S. Army's birthday. That's right. 14 June 1775, Congress resolved that six companies of expert riflemen be immediately raised in Pennsylvania, two in Maryland, and two in Virginia, and as soon as completed, shall march and join the army near Boston to be there employed as light infantry under the command of the chief officer in that army. The delegates then prescribed an oath of enlistment that required the soldiers to swear, I have this day voluntarily enlisted myself as a soldier in the American Continental Army for one year, unless sooner discharged, and I do bind myself to conform in all instances to such rules and regulations as are or shall be established for the government of the said army. 
The next day, Congress voted to appoint George Washington to command all the Continental forces and begin laying the foundation of the American army. So happy birthday, <laughs> American army. Is it also Flag Day today? We're doubling down on patriotic holidays. Flag Day is celebrated on June 14th. It commemorates the adoption of the flag of the United States on June 14, 1777. By resolution of the Second Continental Congress, the flag resolution passed on June 14, 1777, stated, resolved, that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white, on a blue field, representing a new constellation. This design was created by Francis Hopkin, uh, Hopkin's son, sorry, the Continental Congress from New Jersey, and a consultant to the design of the Great Seal of the United States of America. Um, don't usually do anything special except for put my flag out front. And that's kind of how I celebrate Flag Day. And I celebrate uh, the, the, the Army's birthday, the branch that I served in. Um, it is weird. Um, I, I've been thinking about this recently. Um, that we... We hold these men and the women behind them in the day, um, our forefathers, our founding fathers of this nation, the United States, in such high regard, we deify them, ignoring the reality of who and what they actually are as human beings. We champion them for the ideals that they put down on paper and that as a nation they fought for, but that wasn't entirely who and what they are. I think to our detriment, we are mythologizing our country and our constitution, which is supposed to be an ever-changing living document. That was the intended purpose at the beginning, a living document. So we amend it from time to time when we need to. And in our cult current cultural climate, um, I think we need to stop deifying these people. We need to stop pretending like they were perfect embodiments of wisdom and start honestly asking ourselves what it is that we think this country should be. And if we're not willing to live up to those standards, then to stop pretending it and change it. The flag is the symbol of this country. Um, and it is used ad nauseum from banana hammocks to gutter paintings. Um, it's supposed to symbolize a one nation that follows one set of rules, but that's not what we live in. That's not what we have. We have one nation that ignores those rules if you're wealthy, that ignores those rules if you're of uh, privilege. No judgments, but that's a reality. And if we're not going to actually practice the ideals that are set out in the Constitution, well, then we should probably amend it and say, if you're not of privilege, then you don't get, you're not equal if, under the eyes of the law. Uh, if you're not wealthy and of privilege, well, then you don't really deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you can get it on your own, good on you, but you don't really deserve it because that's not what we're doing. 
I get madly emotional staring at the U.S. flag for what it is supposed to represent in the face of what it actually doesn't represent. And it's upsetting to me. Maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe it's all propaganda. But it does bother me. It really does. Um, and that's why for the past couple of weeks, I've been sort of harping on everything that we've been doing, um, how we've treated our citizens as a country, uh, especially in light of the current protesting. And I'm going to continue down that road today. So if you don't want to hear it, I do not mind if you bow out and don't just choose not to. This first segment, Devil's Advocate, has nothing to do with it. Maybe not directly. Um, but the other two segments do. So fair warning, I don't believe anyone should accept my ideas or follow what I say simply because I say it. Um, I think we're all individuals, and that's what makes Satanism as a religion incredibly strong, is that it doesn't matter what you individually believe as a Satanist. What matters is that you are a Satanist, and you will use that power, that inherent power of knowing and understanding the religion to enact your will on the greater world. That is what I respect. Action. Real-world success. Uh, so let's dive into that, shall we? Let's dive into uh, the devil's advocate here. if you guys ever go back and listen to the different years of nine cents that i produce but every year i would come up with a new segment intro for all of the intros some are pretty awesome <laughs> like i actually had someone reach out to me uh, a few years ago asking hey uh that intro that you did i can't remember what year it was maybe 2012 um or, or uh, 20, yeah 2012 and they were like uh could you send that to me i'd like it to be my ringtone <laughs> Because they were just great little segment intros. I spent a ton of time on them, and it was it was a lot of fun. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I'm lazy now. I hope that's okay. Uh, I got a photo here for this conversation. Just because. Why not? It's fun. And it's the doctor. Mm, mm, mm. Love me some Satanism. What does it mean to be a Satanist? Um, Magistra Blanche Barton wrote an essay that's on the Church of Satan's website uh, about why are you a Satanist. I'm not going to retread old ground. But something did strike a chord in me recently that made me want to have this conversation. And not necessarily, not necessarily in the direction you might expect me to go. So let's go down this road. Sorry, I've got like whiskey burps. That's never happened to me before. That was weird. Um, first of all, what does it mean to be a Satanist? When you first pick up the Satanic Bible and you read it, you get excited. You, you become, all, most people, again, this is one size does not fit all, but most people, they turn into this, what we refer to as first phase Satanists, where they get super excited about it, very bombastic, the, the Satanic Bible, Book of Satan specifically. Um, and they get so excited that they want to share it to everyone else, right? They want to spread the word, as it were. 
ignoring the fact that that is antithetical to what Satanism actually is, but that doesn't matter because they just discovered it. And it is natural for someone who is excited about something, whether it's a religion or a film or a new band, to want to share it with other people. And something as divisive as this religion, oh yeah, you've got to shove it in those Christians' faces. You've got to shout it as loud as you can, Hail Satan! Because that it, it disrupts the very atmosphere around you when you say it. It is so powerful and so exciting that you want to share this newfound idea to you. Yeah, I've connected with some of these ideas all my life, but now there's actually tools that I can use? A lesser and greater magic? What? This, I can do this? This is real? This works? What? Right? It's a normal thing. I don't necessarily even think it should always go away because I, I, that excitement, that energy can drive you if pointed in the right direction, ideally to personal goals and succeed uh, successes that you're going to you know, enact in your life as you progress as a human being. But that is an inherent part of what it is to be a Satanist, is to realize that, that excitement, that danger. I mean, most of us have been taught our entire lives what this religion is, and then we discover that it's not that at all. But it's got all that scary baggage, all the dangerous, evil baggage. And let's be honest, we kind of dig that. Ain't nothing wrong with it, but we kind of dig it. That's part of what it is to be a Satanist, to accept who you actually are and to accept this religion as a part of who you actually are, a part, not the whole, a part. We're going to get more into that. Um, but that's a huge part, right? What about people who maybe brought so much baggage that they didn't fully drop it all off at the curb before they stepped under the tent, right? So they're bringing misconceptions of what Satanism actually is with them into this new understanding, new identity of a Satanist. Uh, can you misunderstand the religion and then learn to be a productive member? Because ultimately what you're doing, if you're misunderstanding it, is when you're sharing it or when you're speaking about it to other people or just communicating online nowadays, you are misrepresenting what it is because you don't fully understand it. You're, you're bringing in a bunch of extra bullshit baggage, whether it's occult bullshit or atheistic bullshit or uh, um, 80s satanic panic bullshit or just your regular life experience that you want it to be rather than what it actually is, right? And so some people go through this phase. I certainly went through this phase personally where I, I, it took me a while to shake loose the baggage that I brought with it. But it doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're not a Satanist. It just means that you need to refine your understanding because what the irony of, of Satanism, I think, is that it's something that is never what you expect it to be initially, but that will ultimately inform who you are. So you come into it thinking, I know who I am, I know what Satanism is, it cuts all that out and says, no, no, look at yourself again in the mirror. Take a good hard look. What are those flaws that you're seeing? Why are you not already successful like you want to be or have that woman or man or car or whatever it is? Why don't you, why are you not already there? 
Satanism forces you to take a stop, take a deep breath, and look hard at yourself and be honest about who and what you are. Not all Satanists do that initially. That first phase, you don't want to do that. You just want to shout from the fucking gates of hell, jump in line with the other devils and wreak some havoc on Christians. I get it. And there's nothing wrong with being overly excited about the religion. That's natural. Misunderstanding it is normal. How could it not be? But at some point, you are going to have to accept what it actually is versus what you want it to be or what you think it is and reevaluate whether or not it is still something that you connect with. And if it is, you can still be a productive Satanist. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone makes missteps. It's normal. It's human. We are human animals. It's learning from our mistakes that's important. Do you have to join any organization in order to be a Satanist? What do you guys think out there? No. No. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Satan to be a Satanist. Absolutely not. You can just be an individual who happens to connect with it, that just wants to move forward in their own way, in their own time, with their own life. And that is encouraged. That is fantastic. I've talked to many people over now near 10 years about why they joined the organization if they are in fact members. It's usually just because they want to show respect. That's it. They wanted to show respect to the individual, the man who founded the religion and the organization. Nothing more than that. And they're still out there living their own lives, doing their own thing. There's this wild misunderstanding about an organization like the Church of Satan, specifically the Church of Satan, from the outside, like there's some sort of hive mind or we're all pushed in certain ways politically or socially, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It's literally been described as a meta-tribe, a tent that welcomes anyone that's willing to admit that, yeah, they are in fact a Satanist, and that's it. That's all you have to agree on. But if you don't ever want to be a member, you can still be a fucking Satanist. That doesn't matter. And I want to make sure people understand that because ultimately, if you are for some reason rejected in becoming a member of the Church of Satan, or you joined some other organization, realized what it really was, and then you left it, but you, you know, you're shy, you don't really want to join another organization, that's fine. That's okay. Everyone has to go through life in their own way and learn life through their own mistakes. You don't have to be a member to be a Satanist. You can just be you, and that's fine. So if you feel like you will not fit in with any organization, but you just identify as a Satanist, move on. Move on in good health. Be the most powerful version of you you can, you powerful Satanist. Just admit what it is, and if you are actually that, awesome. Move forward in good health. Good on you. So what does it mean then? If you don't have to identify in a specific organization and you can just be this independent floating entity, which is the entire point in the first place, what does it mean to be a Satanist? I distill it with the single idea of exercising your will. That is it. Take action in your life. Exercise your will to be done. Make goals. Use lesser magic. If you need to, use greater magic 
and see your will done. Part of the pentagonal revisionism is total environments, right? And I've often extrapolated on that saying, well, what? let's examine this construct of total environment. Is it just a room? Is it just a piece of property? Is it your neighborhood, your community? Is it your state? Is it your nation? Is it the world? Where is that boundary to you as a Satanist? Is it internal? Is it your own microbiome? I've talked about all of that. But if you choose not to enact your will in whatever you think your total environment is, can you be a Satanist? If simply reading a book and sitting online and clicking like and commenting on people's comments and throwing up gifts, that is not Satanism. Satanism is not in this box that you're looking at right now, whether it's your phone or a tablet or a desktop or a laptop or whatever fucking future device. Maybe you're plugged into the fucking internet like Neo. That is not Satanism. Satanism is outside of all this. It's out there with your intention and your action. It is not commiserating in chat rooms. It is not fucking hobnobbing in secret private Facebook groups. Now Satanists do that. And to them, that's awesome. That's great. That's what they want to do. They're Satanists because they connect. Well, I say... Fuck you, fuck that, fuck no, fuck off. Satanism is not commiserating. Satanism is you, the only one, you. So in the same way, if you're excited about our founder, why would you not be? And you, like, idolize him, maybe you probably shouldn't, and then you start mimicking things that he's done in his life or ways that he's looked. You're not being you anymore. You're trying to be someone else. The point in Satanism is for you to identify who you actually are as a person, not to mimic someone else. So all these LeVay clones out there, you're fucking doing it wrong. And yeah, you can do it wrong. We, we have a plethora of examples out there. Uh... Taking action in your life. That is what it means to be a Satanist. Not simply identifying, not simply reading a Satanic Bible, not simply buying a fucking medallion, not simply doing anything, but actually taking the knowledge that hopefully you've gleaned, observing who and what you actually are and making those difficult notes and choices in your life and using the toolkit that Satanism provides you with lesser and greater magic to see your will be done. That is what it means. So if something moves you, that is what you should be latching on to. It drives me crazy because, and maybe it's just because I am part of the fucking problem because I create these shows and I have these fucking memberships and I, you know, people want to be a part of it for whatever reason. Maybe they want to see more content. Maybe they want to connect with other people. Maybe whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'm part of the fucking problem because I'm actively creating this mock internet group of audience members. But please, for fuck's sake... I, I hope that's not how you see what I do because that's not how I see it. I'm trying to perform a mild form of entertainment, not a, a group of commiserators 
all those people in social media online with your secret groups and your different levels of secret fucking groups. That's the fucking problem. And maybe I do, maybe I am part of the problem, ultimately. And, and I can accept that. And I'll have to fucking reconcile that. Um, I've been struggling with that for almost 10 years now. Uh, but but we got to stop pretending like, for one, like there is a Satanist. Like there is some sort of vision of what a Satanist is that we can all hold up and, and become. Because there is nothing like that. It's all you. And we need to stop pretending like being a Satanist is hanging out with other Satanists and talking about Satanic things. Because that's not Satanism. Satanism is you away from that as yourself changing the world to your own end. Real world accomplishment. We need to strip away what people believe it is. Because ultimately, that's all the first phase is. It's wanting to connect with other Satanists so you can have other friends that are Satanists so you can talk about Satanism with other people and see if they like it as much as you or do weird ritual things like you where maybe you can all get together and you can get a nude altar and all giggle and, you know, be all crazy and scream Shimham Farash out in the middle of the ritual. That's not Satanism. You are Satanism. So what does it mean to be a Satanist? It means being yourself, knowing who that is. And if not being content with that, then working until you are. Self-work. No one else is going to hold your hand and help you. No one else is going to push you to make the right choices in life for you. Because no one knows what those are except you. Satanism is a part of who we are. It is not the entirety of who we are. And it's incredibly important to be reminded of that. Because maybe it means that we need to change our behavior. And the only way you're going to know that is if you question yourself. Am I being the best version of me I can be? And it's something that I, I harp on all the time. But it's important. All right, what are you guys saying? I'd be interested to see the perspective of a Satanist that grew up with technology as the ma majority of their environment. Yeah. Yeah, that would be very interesting, actually. Um, you registered as a member to support the content, and so members show the... Oh. <laughs> I'm not meaning to shit on anyone, by the way. This is just me ranting, okay? So please don't take this personal at all. Um, which is why it's so exhausting to read the replies on COS's tweets. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh Clinton, that's absolutely right. And I think this is important that people accept. There was not a religion ever formulated called Satanism before the doctor formed it for the first time, ever. There were elements that he drew from that can be seen as Satanic, but never a formed organization or religious structure. Which means that there were Satanists before Satanism was founded and the Church of Satan as an organization was founded. They existed simply as de facto Satanists. And we see them all about the world. If you're looking, they're here. Maybe they've never been made aware of Satanism. Maybe they just don't like the trappings of it, but it is who they actually are because 
they accept all of the ideals that are within the standard Bible, right? Um, so yeah, they definitely existed beforehand. And so we need to stop trying to tie the religion to the organization or to each other because they are not one and the same. The Church of Satan created the religion. It is not the religion. It defines and defends the religion. It is not the religion. You, all of you, individually off, you are what Satanism is. And it's important to understand that. Uh, at least in my opinion, that's how I see it. Uh, yeah, and there are, Jason, you're absolutely right. So many people are just looking to climb some weird proverbial ladder. They're trying to get a, a, a new colored pin on their shirt. They're trying to um, um, uh, find some sort of validation in their life. Or they just want to be, a, you know, maybe they came from an occult background or a military background. And I think the only way that they can have some sort of validation is by having some sort of pin or check mark or smiley face or star or something next to their name. Um, and that's just not, that's not the reality of it. Um, I think it's gonna be funny. I'm gonna look tomorrow and <laughs> every member is just gonna have left. <laughs> it's just like, fuck him. That's funny. Um, I just joined stuff to give credit where credit is due. If connection comes fine, but I'm not actually, uh, enough of a joiner at that point. I can totally respect that. Um, ooh, so here is a tough, this is tough, or be a Satan is in prison for murder. Yeah, yeah. You can be a human who has committed murder and still be a Satanist. It means you made a mistake as a Satanist <laughs> because you murdered someone and it's supposed to be symbolic in Satanism, not actually going out and murdering them. Or you could be a soldier and you've killed people on the battlefield. That's legal, so that's okay. <laughs> It's illegal for the victorious, uh, victorious country, that is. Um, it's, it's challenging, right? I mean, to, to really honestly ask yourself these things. You're probably wrong for thinking this, but for you, Satanism is about claiming the world as your own. No, that's absolutely right. That's not wrong at all. Um, balance factor, though. I mean, realize that probably you're not going to be the ruler of the world. <laughs> so you're going to have to carve out a niche for yourself and claim what is, you know, in the balance factor, appropriate for you. But definitely, yeah. Um, and so when I, when I talk about politics or anything really, um, and I add a context of Satanism to it, I'm filtering it through my own personal experience. I'm not dictating that this is what I believe Satanists should think at all. And that's why I'm so pleased that that you guys don't all agree with me, that you challenge me. Um, that is what we should, that is the best of what this religion offers. Uh, so, with that in mind, let's get into some, uh, some interesting stuff with the Infernal Informant, shall we?
All right, let's do this. Let me throw up the right one here. This is a longer article, which is why I only chose one rather than two this week. Again, this is uh, an article on ABC News. What do terms like systemic racism, microaggression, and white fragility mean? Um, as protesters decry and demand deeply entrenched forms of racism be rooted out, the phrases commonly heard in the parlance of grassroots movements gone global have become part of the mainstream dialogue. But what do these terms actually mean? Understanding them and their meaning is important, sociology and African-American experts say, for anyone who hopes to be a meaningful ally in tackling racism. For far too many whites, if there is not a boogeyman who can be pointed out and forced to apologize, then racism doesn't exist, says Mark Anthony Neal, a professor of African and African-American studies at Duke University. If you are a white ally, you listen to the messaging and you go back to your people, your company, your institution, your father, and you share what you've learned and heard. I don't need you to feel my pain. I need you to have influence with those who are responsible for my pain to help address the issues. Here's a breakdown of some of the phrases by those who are seeking to dismantle racism. Systemic racism. It refers to the rules, practices, and customs once rooted in law. These may have changed over time, resulting in the facade of equality, but the residual effects reverberate through entire societal systems, said Andrea Gilseppi, an associate professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute at Emory University. For example, while redlining, a multifaceted practice of denying financial government and other services to people in certain neighborhoods or communities based on race or ethnicity. It's illegal, uh, is illegal, the homes in those communities, as a result of that long-standing practice, often haven't uh, appreciated at the same rate as in white suburban communities, sociology and policy experts said. This means that when people of color who lived in redlined communities get ready to sell their homes, they receive far less in the proceeds and have far less capital to leverage. Additionally, these communities tend to have a lower tax base, and as a result, their schools have fewer resources to educate children of color. That puts those communities' kids behind their white peers academically, epidemiology, epidemi epidemiology sociology, and African-American studies experts told ABC News. Redlining represents systemic racism in that there was collusion between different systems, the removing of resources by financial systems, disinvestment by city governments, benign neglect, banks had to be involved, realtors. The legacy of redlining is the basis for colorblind racism, says Zizi Bailey, a social epidemiologist at University of Miami Miller School of Medicine's J. Weiss Institute for Health Equity at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. Separating people out in this way makes it easier to deny certain zip codes and neighborhoods resources such as grocery stores, bicycle lanes, public transportation, and more by making the argument that those residents don't need or cannot financially support such amenities, so why even bother building them? Some experts point to the Baltimore neighborhoods where Freddie Gray was arrested in April 2015, suffered a spinal injury in police custody, and died as an example of the impact of systemic racism. Gray was arrested in Gilmore Homes, a public housing complex in his community. It is an area that the activists said lacked adequate grocery options, sufficient public transportation to other parts of the city, had public schools with fewer resources, and higher numbers of students on free and reduced lunch, and at the time, a stepped-up police presence. Sociology 
public policy and African-American studies experts say in many ways, systemic racism is like a large spider web, with each corner and fiber representing government and social systems, all supporting the overall integrity of the web. Dismantling systemic racism means looking at systems that reproduce racism, law enforcement, real estate, education, health, all of it, Neil said. So, structural racism. This term refers to a system in which public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work in various, often reinforcing ways, to perpetuate racial group inequality. It identifies dimensions of our history and culture that have allowed privileges associated with whiteness and disadvantages associated with color to endure and adapt over time. Structural racism is not something that a few people or institutions choose to practice. Instead, it has been a feature of the social, economic, and political systems in which we all exist, according to the Aspen Institute's Roundtable on Community Change. Structural racism refers to interdependence of one institution to the next, says Elisa Selwell, an associate professor of sociology at Emory University and the founding director of the Race and Policing Project. It functions much as the sections of the spider web, each touching the next, she says. It's when black kids are disproportionately put in special education classes, become disruptive out of boredom, are expelled from school, and then they are criminalized as adults, Sewell said. Once you get in that space of being in prison, it locks you into a trajectory in life of competing for resources. Once you have the mark of a criminal, it invades every aspect of your life. You can't get an apartment or a job. Structural racism is currently playing out in ways people of color who disproportionately make up the invisible army of workers, all now deemed essential to help the nation reopen, are being impacted, Bailey said. We're able to see differences in how people are valued, who co-authored, uh, Bailey co-authored a 2017 paper on The Lancet examining racial health inequality. So the next, institutional racism. If systemic racism is the large spider web, and structural racism is the sections of that web that touch, then institutional racism is the thread that runs throughout, experts say. It is racism that occurs within social and government institutions and refers to the blocking of people of color from the distribution of resources in a systemic way that benefits whites. The term hails from the 60s era black radical movement and was used by activist Stokely Carmichael, who would later be known as the Kwame Tour, and sociologist Charles V. Hamilton in Black Power, The Politics of Liberation. In application, it might look like a lender charging a black college student seeking to purchase their first car so they can have transportation to a better paying job at much higher interest rate than a young white customer. As a result, the black customer will see less of their check from the new job, have less money available to pay tuition, and be forced to work more hours to be able to afford the note than their white classmate, therefore taking away time from their studies and putting them behind academically. Predatory lending practices that target minorities and their communities in the 1990s with disproportionately high fees, payment structures, and interest rates fed into the wave of foreclosures during the 2008 U.S. housing crisis, research from such organizations as Princeton University later found. Military rules, since revised for several branches that disallowed for hairstyles such as locks, cornrows, and braids, are also an example of institutionalized racism, Giuseppe said. It may not have been intended to discriminate, but it doesn't consider that differences in hair texture. The kid wearing dreadlocks doesn't get penalized in the same way as his classmate. It's about making rules that have a disparate impact 
on people of color. The impacts of institutional racism start as early as when a child of color is born, and even when that child is in the womb, experts say. Institutional racism results in data showing racial gaps across every system. For children and families, it affects where they live, the quality of the education they receive, their income, types of food they have access to, their exposure to pollutants, whether they have access to clean air, clean water, or adequate medical treatment, and the types of interactions they have with the criminal justice system, according to the University of Noah Carolina Chapel Hill's Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute, which examined the impact of such practices on kids. The next, white privilege. According to Aspen Institute, white privilege, or historically accumulated white privileges as we have come to call it, refers to whites' historical and contemporary advantages and access to quality education, decent jobs, and livable wages, home ownership, retirement benefits, wealth, and so on. White privilege exists regardless of that person's socioeconomic status, sociology experts said. It is an advantage conferred to white people in a range of different structures. The privileges their worth and reception differently than a person of color, Bailey said. The advantage is that it conferred to those folks regardless of their individual economic status or history. All else being equal, there is an advantage to being white. Yes, you may have a lower social economic status, but a black person will encounter structural disadvantages that you will not. Yes, you worked hard, but our society has also valued you more. Experts say a recent and widely condemned example of white privilege was when Amy Cooper, who is white, was walking her dog off-leash in New York's Central Park Ramble, called the police, and falsely claimed that Christian Cooper, who is black, was birdwatching, was an African-American man threatening my life. Though she later apologized in that moment, experts said she was leveraging a history of privilege as a white woman and relying on a false narrative of being especially venerable to predatory attacks from black men. White privilege is about your blind spots, Gilseppe said. Privilege is born out of a hierarchical system where some people have more advantages than others. They do stuff like, I don't like this conversation about leashing my dog, so I'm going to call New York Police Department and play the white damsel in distress role. White privilege plays out in more subtle ways too, especially in corporate spaces, pointing to instances when those who have access to elite college and social clubs through a family legacy built during a time when people of color were not allowed such access, then those with connections to help their children, friends, and kids of their friends gain connections and jobs. If you got a job or connection from spaces that were de facto segregated, you might think you somehow earned it in a way that is more deserving than someone who got a position through affirmative action, Gilseppe said. That's white privilege. White privilege is not worrying about what type of mask to wear or whether to wear one at all because coronavirus doesn't impact your community as much, or not worrying about getting shot by the cops if you're pulled over, or not having to think about someone following you around a store. White privilege is not that white people have no problems and blacks have all of the problems, she said. It's that blacks have unique and historic challenges all tied to the color of their skin. White fragility refers to the negative emotional reaction some whites have when racism on various levels is called to their attention by people of color, sociology and African-American studies experts said. We're seeing this probably right now in the chat room as you're sitting at home and certainly online in social media. 
White fragility is based on people of color having to couch statements and feelings for the comfort of white people, Bailey said. When you're trying to describe a system where there are inequities built into it, people start crying and talking about their experience, and it acts as a barrier to people of color sharing it with white people because they can't handle it. While it is normal to feel upset when confronted with uncomfortable truths and perspectives, white fragility supports racism because it shifts the power dynamic in an insidious way, Neil says. All of a sudden, the conversation becomes less about what the person of color experienced, but the white person's reaction and, in doing so, is in an attempt to undercut the validity of the person of color's experience. It's the whole, I can't believe you accuse me of that, I'm not a racist, defense. It forces black people to be in defensive positions because of white people's hurt feelings, Neil said. What you end up managing is their grief and trauma, which becomes a bigger issue. If you are an African-American who raises issues of racism or discrimination, you always have to consider how white people are going to react and then how people react to that reaction. White fragility can have an especially negative impact in a work and social spaces, experts say. When confronted by a person of color with their experiences of racism, white fragility can manifest as, oh, she was being so aggressive and so unprofessional. I don't think she's a good fit here anymore. And therefore have retaliatory impacts for someone's employment, Bailey said, adding, we should not have to cater to the comfort of white people. We shouldn't limit justice based on the comfort of white people. White fragility is that inherent sense that you have to take care of white people and their feelings. Substitute black for gay. White fragility is the exact same. Substitute black or gay for trans. White fragility is the exact same. Stop making it about you and understand someone else's perspective, someone else's worldview. It doesn't mean you're a liberal or a libtard or a fucking snowflake or whatever the fuck you want to call it. It means you're a human being with perspective. And isn't that what Satanists are supposed to be? Microaggression. This refers to the quotidian racial slights that accumulate and make a person feel marginalized, Gilseppe said. Microaggression can manifest in myriad ways in everyday interactions and communication as small actions, comments, snide, or snarky expressions that show their value in a structure, Gilseppe added. For example, it can present, uh, present as not directly answering a black colleague who raised a question in an email or meeting and instead directing your response to someone else who is white or perceived as less challenging to your beliefs, Neil said. It can also occur when a person of color is deliberately left off such email chains or meetings, he and other experts added. It's when the white manager takes certain staffers out for after-work cocktails and never invites the staffer of color. The problem of lack of diversity in workplace settings also present through uh, microaggressions as well, experts said, pointing out that when it comes to taking an experience gleaned from minority-owned or focused companies or attending historically black colleges and universities, sometimes experience is viewed as somehow less valid. During a hiring process, you may be hiring a number of people uh, of different candidates. These hiring panels are often usually white, maybe one token person of color. They'll have two candidates, one white and the other person of color, both equally qualified. You'll hear the other person is not just the right fit for our organization, 
Bailey uh, said, adding, it's a microaggression of a lot of people of color experience every day. Then, for the sole person of color in the room, the onus is on them to say, what do you mean, not the right fit? And then the question, why don't we have a diverse staff? Microaggressions also occur in other spaces, such as classrooms, television castings, bars, and other places. They point out that asking where someone of color is really from, constantly making one person of color, uh, mistaking one person of color for another, or suggesting that they look alike, person of color, and having an expectation that a person of color should sound a certain way, are all common microaggressions. Gilseppe said common microaggressions include not speaking to people of color in the hallway or in meetings when you speak to others, telling a black person, you are so articulate, telling someone who is Asian American or Latin X that you speak English so well. If you are a teacher, that makes basketball references and always looks over at the black kid. The example of the black girl on the reality show who's going to be the troublemaker, grabbing your purse in a store when a black teen walks by, all of these are microaggressions. All right, the last one, white splaining. In this context, when a white person claims expertise on racial issues to a person of color, with Americans taking to the streets to protest the killing of George Floyd when in the, when the, while in Minneapolis police custody, corporate America is now using this national movement to speak out on racism and pledge a renewed commitment to diversity and inclusion. However, there are perils in this approach depending on how such message is phrased, experts said. As CEOs continue to issue strongly worded statements condemning racism and announce multi-million dollar initiatives to advance cause of diversity, the arrest and death of Floyd has brought renewed scrutiny to the lack of diversity within the C-suites of corporate America. Everybody needs a diversity statement. Some people are making statements when they have listened, Gilseppe said. On an interpersonal level, white splaining occurs when a white person tries to explain the lived experience to a person of color, a complete disregard that manifests itself in the way that they haven't listened. An example is when there are meetings in which there are clear experts in the room on matters of race. Those experts are ignored, and someone white without the background explains the issue. White splaining, she said, is when white people shout out of ignorance, I'm sorry, arrogance and lack of humility, and part of it is dominance. They are used to being dominant, and they are exercising that dominance over the person of color. Often the white person couches their expertise by explaining that they know what they're talking about because they are raising a black kid, married to a black spouse, have a black friend or friends. Those are all excuses and an attempt to buffer. The point out as a badge of honor and marker of one's liberalism. For some people, they don't realize their arrogance takes on whatever status they embody. As Americans work to confront the ways racism impacts their lives in broader systemic and individual ways, it is important to open to self-reflection and learn more from others, especially from the lived experiences of people of color, sociology and African-American studies experts told ABC News. Challenge yourself with difficult writings. If you are in a space where you are in a position of power, endeavor to listen more than you speak, Gilseppe said. This is definitely a time of listening and reflecting and intentionality. No one is asking anyone to walk on eggshells. If you're someone who feels like they walk into a space like they own it, consider whether you feel you can do that because of the privilege you have and because of your whiteness. If someone points something out to you, be willing to ask questions if you don't understand, but also be willing to receive the critique. 
I love this article because it speaks to the issues that we're facing and have been facing as a culture in America, um, arguably around the world, but specifically here in America from the beginning. Uh, it speaks to privilege that I have, to behavior that I have exhibited. And it's part of the fucking problem. It's not putting certain members on a higher pedestal than others. It's letting the cream rise to the crop, letting merit take control rather than the color of your skin or your family's money. It's a real fucking issue that Satanists should champion, not because whatever liberal phrase you want to throw out there, but because meritocracy is what Satanism is all about. The individual. It is about their ability to engage with the world, to manipulate and change the world to their own will. It shouldn't matter where you come from, how you identify, who you like to fuck. It should only matter what you bring to the fucking table. So it always blows my mind when you have Satanists who are in stark opposition to these obvious fucking clear problems that have existed for so long. And they're so afraid that if they admit for one second that any of it could possibly be true, then somehow their entire worldview collapses. It doesn't have to. Part of being a Satanist is asking those hard questions, looking in the mirror to yourself. We already talked about this. If that means that you're engaging in behavior that is structurally putting others down on an individual level, I don't give a fuck what you do. But on a grand cultural level, you should probably rethink it. Not for the better of mankind, not for the love of your neighbor, but because if you want to be given those same opportunities, if you want to be given those same freedoms, those same... If you don't want to be discriminated in the same way, why would you then do it to other people? It doesn't make any sense. Satanists should know better. We don't always. That's real life. That's okay. That's reality. But that's why I bring up stuff like this, so that hopefully we can examine it. And ultimately, it's not about being a better culture. It's not about being a better so, uh, society for all people. It's about being a better individual person. So that you don't need to subdue others in order to get ahead. That you can stand on an evil, uh, well, uh, on a level playing field and still be the number one person. Not because of your family background, not because of your skin color, but because you brought it. That is real life accomplishment. Simply being put in a better school because you have family, family connections, that's not real life accomplishment. That's you gaining the system. And again, it exists. It happens. Nothing wrong with it. But the truth is, if you were put head to head with someone else, you might lose in that case. So you had to game the system. Not because you knew you could win, but because you didn't even want to get on the fucking field in the first place. 
those are the type of people I don't want in positions of authority because they're afraid, they're weak. I want to see those battle scars. I want to see how you fought and you won. That is what I will respect. Gaming the system, yeah, it happens. People get away with it. I'm not going to respect you for that. All right. What the hell are you guys talking about? One of the questions you have about white privilege is the success of Nigerian Americans. Why are they doing better in a lot of other groups? Some, a lot of Asian groups, something I think about. Uh, there's always exceptions to the rule in everything. Um, systemic issues are going to hit people regionally differently. It is just a natural thing. Um, I'm sure for every Nigerian descent individual you point of success, there are going to be dozens more that did not achieve that same success. So it's hard to have those overarching ideas. Um, though you do have those systemic issues of, well, Asian Americans focus on family units more than some other family, uh, than some other ethnicities. And so they tend to um, be less divisive and more accepting and um, uh, to the broader society. And so they succeed more often than others. Um, you're going to see that in different cultural and regional groups. One size does not fit all. But America does and has always had racism built into the sheets. Literally, the founders who wrote the Declaration of Independence were slave owners. So to pretend like it doesn't exist or that it wasn't a thing, to pretend that African Americans did not build this country through slavery is ignoring history. And that's something that Satanists are not supposed to be forgetful of. Past orthodoxies. Um... Cops actually kill more whites, which makes sense. We're a larger segment of the population. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I actually did a show on this, um, speaking to the percentages of groups. Um, and the truth is, it's not in the total numbers. It's in the uh, disparities of those groups that you find the racism. Uh, and that's the problem. By the way, I agree with you on that point, but surely there are plenty of racists out there who identify themselves as Satanists and wrap themselves in the Baphomet. For sure. And that's fine. Like, I am not here to say that someone should not be a racist. Um, I am here to present my Satanic perspective, which says you don't need to be a racist. You should want to be better, not because of your ancestry, but because of what you bring to the table. That's it. In the same way that Satanism is not a group of Satanists, it is the individual. Being a Satanist is engaging with the world, seeing your will be done, creating those is-to-bes. The individual. Racists ignore the individual. Racists latch on to groupthink because either they're too afraid to do it on the individual level because it, maybe they just don't muster up next to the, the people they're condemning or maybe they're just taught that way and they just, that's their learned behavior that happens and again you can always learn you can always educate and that's something satanists should always be doing is challenging questioning always um 
It is disproportionately high. Yeah. If you look at that uh, dog, it absolutely is. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not saying don't have prejudices. That's natural. That's human. Um, I'm not saying don't hate anyone for whatever reason you want to hate them. That's you. That's your choice. I don't give a fuck what you do. I'm saying that there is a problem, that that is a part of the problem, and that I, as a Satanist, recognize that. Um, and if you're tuning into my show, then you're going to get my opinion. <laughs> That's just what it is, you know? Um, thank you guys for uh, tuning into that. Let's, uh, the tension's not over yet. We're going to close out with something a little bit more fun, though. So, Creature Feature. All right, all right, all right. This was a pleasant surprise when I watched it. First of all, I love Dave Chappelle as a comedian. He's hilarious. He's great. He challenges. He is uncouth in his delivery and his choice of topics. He doesn't give a fuck. He will give it to you through his original perspective. And I respect that. Um, I've watched as many Mark Twain prizes, which is an award given to um, humorists, American humorists, um, and a bunch of wonderful comedians have gotten it. When he got it, he was the only one who did a, like a documentary style, and he completely did it in his own Dave Chappelle way, and it was great. I would argue Dave Chappelle is less of a straight comedian and more of a conversationalist, um, but again, that's a form of, of comedy uh, when there's humor involved, and I dig it. Okay, so 846 is the new stand-up special that he just released for free on YouTube. Um, it's like this Netflix is shit channel or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but, uh, uh, I'll have the link in the show notes if you don't find it yourself, but it, you should be able to find it really easily. He addresses a number of different things, um, about what's going on right now, but the overarching message is that it seems the media has been calling on, um, celebrities to give their voices and, uh, for... There's this idea in our culture that unless a celebrity says it, then it's not real or it's not important. Politicians are all seen as lying snakes. Um, and so as a celebrity has to say it so that it's true. This is an insane idea. I, I've never understood how you can equate truth with a profession I don't care if you're a 12-year-old kid. If you speak truth, then it is truth. It is reality. And not talking about perspective, like your truth, like Oprah says. You know, you must speak your truth. No, fuck that. I'm talking about objective reality that we all witness and that we all understand. If It doesn't matter what your profession is. And so why would you would look to a, a, a celebrity to say something in order to have people believe it is absurd to me and apparently to uh, Dave Chappelle as well. And so he kept his mouth shut for two weeks and then uh, he kept writing, taking his thoughts, putting them together and created this very short, I think it's like 15, 20 minutes um, set. It's a tight 15. <laughs> 
Um, he talks a little bit about George Floyd's death, of course, um, because he was born at 8.46 a.m. And George Floyd had a knee on his neck, choking him to death for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And so he made this connection to his life and George Floyd's death. I thought it was an interesting premise to bounce the special off on. Um, but it, it worked to me because that's a long time and that's a, that's murder. And the guy who did it had interaction with George Floyd. He was at a bouncer job. Uh, George Floyd mocked him. Um, and I think got him fired from the bouncer job. Uh, and then this seems very much like revenge. Once you put all the facts together, he murdered him. Uh, it wasn't a police technique gone wrong. No, they knew each other. He murdered him. Um, and so that's sort of the frame. And so it's talking about how Don Lemon was calling for celebrity voices to help spread the word and how he's like, no, this is the streets shouting. They are doing the right thing by reacting in an honest and real way. They have the voice. They have the floor. No one wants to hear from us. And he's absolutely right. He talks about Candace Owens, who, if you're not familiar, is a uh, black female commentator hired by right-wing entities, whether they're news media or um, TV media, in order to shit on black communities. Um, she has been doing it for a long time. It's the same thing. Fox News does this a lot where they can't have a white person saying how terrible the black community is. They have to find a black person to say it. And so they find someone like Candace Owens, pay them money, and then they spout whatever vile shit they want to spout. And that means that now there's a different perspective. Um, well, the truth is they do that for everything. They do this for gay men. They do this for um, uh, black Republicans. Um, Candace Owens is just the, the newest version of this, though she's been around for a while. Um, and he just shits all over her hypocritical points. And it's really great. Um, and then he addresses black men murdering cops and how people don't seem to understand that from a black person's perspective, they are not given the same opportunities. They are told that they do not they are not included in the greater society. It has to be affirmative action that lets certain amounts of them in. So if they're not a part of the society and they're being actively murdered by the society that's saying that they should feel they should be able to rise up like everyone else is rising up, but then at every corner they're cut at the knees in order to, to see that success, why would they not find frustration with that system? The black men who murdered cops, uh, the most recent two that he addresses in this, were veterans. And their, their um, vocalized reasoning was because these cops were terrorists. They were terrorizing black men and women. They were murdering them. So what do you do with terrorists when you're trained by the United States? You fucking kill them. And so that's what they did. They fucking killed the terrorists. So don't be surprised if you as a cop who is acting like a terrorist to the citizens that you're supposed to be protecting and defending 
Get your ass fucking shot by that same citizenry that you're tear gassing, firing rubber bullets at, at peaceful fucking protests. And then you cry, blue lives matter. You should respect me because I'm a police officer. Fuck you. You created the problem in the first place. It is your behavior. And if you're not a part of the problem, you are silencing the problem by standing in unity together instead of condemning the actual cops that are perpetuating the violence. You turned your back on the community. You murdered its citizens. What do you think is going to happen? What? You break the law, and then you're pissed when others break it on you. He addresses that. I didn't mean to get all emotional about it. Fuck. <laughs> um, it's a great stand-up. I mean, it's not his best. I'm going to put that out there. It's not his best. But it's poignant. And I, I love it when he gets up there because he, he doesn't care. He doesn't care whether you're a part of any minority group. He doesn't care if you're a privileged group. He will fire at you when he sees something to fire at verbally. And it is great. I don't care if I'm the target. I can appreciate humor. And I love it. And he does it masterfully. So check out 846 if you have the opportunity. It's great. It's really great. Though, if you're a bigot, you're probably not going to like it. <laughs> I'm going to throw that out there. And if you don't like comedy, how are you a Satanist? <laughs> like, honestly, shouldn't Satanists be able to laugh at themselves? I believe that's kind of a thing in Satanism. Um, <laughs> the best magicians are magicians able to find the humor in reality and to be able to laugh at themselves. That's paraphrasing the doctor, uh, if it matters. So, there you go, Zachary. That's right up. That's it. That's absolutely right. Okay, that's it for this show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. It's hot in here. Uh, my whiskey's almost gone. My temper's run high. <laughs> I'm, I'm all emotional now. I know if, if you disagree with my perspective, I understand that it's challenging for you to sit through it. And so I don't expect you to. If you're able to and you disagree with me, I'd love to hear you your comments in the chat room. I'd love to hear your reactions in the discussion uh, underneath. What I won't accept is um, childish behavior. So name calling and hyperbole, uh, hyperbole and, and, you know, just sort of ridiculous behavior. We can be adults and disagree because that's life. Um, and I encourage that and I accept that and I welcome it and I will keep your comments up there so others in the future will be able to see dissenting or contrasting opinions. I think that is healthy and I want to foster that. So thank you for those willing to sit through and willing to have that dialogue because you're actively making this a better society, this little microcosm, and I know how micro it really is, um, uh, that I'm a part of. I want it to be open, not for inclusivity, but for honest dialogue. And that's challenging. And that can be frustrating. And that could be maddening. But we're adults. This is what it means to be a Satanist to have your perspective, and to be open to others' perspectives. You don't have to agree. It's okay.
So thank you all. If you appreciate what I'm doing, if you appreciate this series, sign up, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, sign up to the email list, and I'll let you know what I'm going to be talking about next and when I'm going to be doing it. Um, if you get this via the podcast, uh, just search Reverend Campbell in whatever podcast program you get. But I would really appreciate a rating and a review. Give me a star rating and give me an honest review. It doesn't have to be glowing. It doesn't have to be um, positive. Just honest. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what other people are looking for. And that's why I like them. Um, though if it's going to be like a one star, you can fuck off. <laughs> Just saying. I've got enough of those already. <laughs> I really do too. Um, uh, what else? If you want to learn more about Satanism or the Church of Satan, check out churchofsatan.com and read the standard Bible. Hey, celebrate that first phase if you're finding it. I loved it. It's so good. And there's no reason why you can't just latch on to some of it and just keep it with you because Satanism is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be exciting. We're talking about devils in hell, man. What's greater than that? Come on. It's fun. So, uh, and you know, you know, personal development and successes and real life accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> but mainly devils in hell. <laughs> it's great. All right. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Until next week, uh, hail Satan. <laughs>